Well, good morning, friends. Um, my name is Brad. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and it's our privilege and pleasure to have you with us here. And uh, as you know and have heard, and probably some of you have experienced, uh, it's a graduation season, and graduation season uh, means commencement speeches. And some of these speeches are great and inspiring, and some of them are really awkward. Take, for example, the commencement address that Tom Kenny gave at the University of Vermont in 2012. Kenny is a voice actor. He's best known for being the voice of a rectangular animated character who lives in a pineapple under the sea. Which is fine, except he gave the entire commencement address in character with silly rhymes like, I keep thinking about life on Lake Camplain and how much I miss Squidward who called me a pain. So I'm just unclear as to how that is commencement level life advice for graduates from post-secondary education. But the previous year at the University of Vermont was not much better. They invited a tennis great, Billie Jean King, which is a great idea to speak about sport and athletics and dealing with pressure. But she got to a point in her speech where underneath her robe she had a hidden tennis racket and she whipped it out and started lobbing serves into the crowd and hit about 12 people in the head <laughs> while Elton John's Philadelphia Freedom played on the speakers. So I'm not convinced that pelting your audience with projectiles is a good graduation commencement address. Uh, in 2004, Sasha Baron Cohen gave the commencement address at Harvard. Gave it in gangster-style slang phrases like, normally the only public speaking that me does is to 12 people. And the speech was bizarre and ended in a staged event of Cohen getting dragged off of the stage, handcuffed by the Harvard police. This is what you get graduating at America's premier university, people. Thirteen years before the perennial grad gift of the places you'll go, Dr. Seuss read the class of 1977 a poem he titled, My Uncle Terwillinger and the Art of Eating Popovers. And the poem is exactly about what it sounds like, popovers, as a metaphor for surviving in the real world. And Dr. Seuss said this, as you partake of the world's bill of fare, that's darned good advice to follow. Do a lot of spitting out the hot air and be careful what you swallow. I kind of like that one. But the most intriguing and thoroughly thoughtful graduation speeches in recent years, other than the one, the guy that paid off everyone's student loans, we can agree that's the new high point in commencement speeches. Um, but a few years ago, author David Foster Wallace, uh, who himself is quite a character, gave a commencement address at Keaton College, and it was subsequently published into a book called This is Water. And in it, he speaks to the graduates about their focus, and he says this, I think it's profound and true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, 
There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, things as if they were real and meaningful, and you tap your real meaning in life into that, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body, beauty, sexual allure, you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need more and more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect and you want to be seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on, he says. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, Foster Wallace says. It's just that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure your value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. It's quite a profound speech if you read the entirety of it. Those are just some excerpts. And it rings true, I think. Bob Dylan once said, we all are worshiping somebody. We gotta worship somebody. Might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're gonna worship somebody. You're gonna serve somebody. And we've been uh, in a teaching series here at Jericho Ridge called Serpents and Doves. And we've been looking at what it takes to live with wisdom in the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 to his followers, I'm sending you out into the world and you need to exercise wisdom, be as wise as serpents and as gentle or harmless as doves. And one of the things that takes incredible wisdom to do well is to assess where our focus is and why. How do we measure not only our own values, but also how do we engage in conversation with people who have placed their values in other things and in other places? They hold different convictions in what or who or how they worship, either consciously or unconsciously. It's one of the most difficult things to do is to hold your own convictions firmly, but then graciously engage in conversation with someone who differs. And these conversations often go very poorly because they become frustrating or antagonistic or people start with the wrong set of assumptions about other people. And maybe you've had your own share of those conversations. And so today as we wrap up this series, we want to do a little bit of case study work. And we're going to look at a passage in the book of Acts. And one of the leaders of the early Christian movement by the name of Paul was always actively engaging in conversations about Jesus to people who maybe didn't share his own perspective and experiences and commitments. And last weekend we talked about um, how we need to be really wise as serpents and also as gentle as doves. So that's not always a choice of, oh, this is a dove-like situation, and the next one is, oh, this is a more a situation to be bold. We talked about how 
to combine those two things. And so in Acts chapter 17, Paul does that in three different conversations that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles or on your devices, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And the book of Acts really reads uh, almost like a travel diary of Paul's journeys. He was an early missionary in and around the Mediterranean in the first century. And he had a personally radical experience where Jesus appeared to him in a vision and gave him an assignment to go and talk about God with others and to spread the message of Jesus in the first century. And so he did that. And in Acts chapter 17, uh, this chapter finds, Acts, uh, finds Paul rather in the city of Athens in Greece. And so we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, in Athens, Paul's walking around. He's waiting for some other travel companions to join him. And he sees all of the idols in the city. So Acts 17, 16 says, Paul was waiting for them in Athens and he was deeply troubled by all of the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. So Paul sees these idols and it says he was greatly troubled or he's greatly distressed. Now, we tend to think about idols as physical images or statues, and certainly in the ancient world, that was true. If you go even today to Athens, you can see countless ruins of ancient idols, these figures that were set up as representatives of the belief systems or gods or goddesses that people worshipped in the ancient world. But Sometimes when we read the Bible and we come across a word like idols or idolatry, we can think to ourselves, oh, those silly pagans in the ancient world, they worship those things. We are much more sophisticated than all of that. We don't do any of those types of things. But what would it look like or what does it look like for us to honor the commandment that we're given not to have any graven images or idols in any way? What does worship look like in that? Well, it, part of it revolves around properly defining what idolatry is. And I was reading a book this last week that our elders and staff team are going through uh, by a local author and pastor, Ken Shigematsu. And he said brilliantly and succinctly this, that according to scripture, anything that we turn to as our primary source of meaning and validation in our lives, apart from God, is idolatry. Anything that we turn to as the primary source for meaning and validation apart from God is our idol. If that's true, what would be and just shout out some of the answers, what would be some of the things that you would say in our culture today can fulfill that function? What are some idols in our world today? Sorry? Shopping. Shopping. Yeah, materialism. Sports. Yeah, Sports can become that. Yeah, what else? Our bank balance, our personal net worth. Yeah, what else? Politics can become that. What else? Health, our own health. Yeah, what else? Toru. Relationships, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what else? Sorry, education? Yeah. 
Family can become an idol, absolutely. So this is where it gets complicated because some of these things are good things. They're difficult things when, and they become, when we turn to them as our primary source of meaning and validation, things like security or wealth or beauty or success or achievement are just a few examples of things that can be idols for us in our lives and in our world today. And the challenge is, because they're not as obvious as a big gold statue sitting somewhere, they're harder for us to identify. And it's harder for us sometimes to pinpoint when we've crossed into that place of outside of it being just a healthy, normal part of our life to being something that now we actually are turning to for our primary source of meaning and validation. But Paul, as he goes around and interacts with this city of people in Athens, he sees these things and it actually creates a distress in his soul. And so he moves from that place to proclaim the saving faith of Jesus instead of having people putting their hopes in all of these other idols. And he engages people in conversation. And we're going to see three conversations here that Paul has. And we're going to learn some things about how we can have conversations with different kinds of people. So the three types of conversations that Paul's going to have, the first one is a synagogue conversation. This is a conversation that he's having with people who share his own religious history, cultural background, and some affinity in moral and other issues. The next one he's gonna have is a public square conversation out in the world where he's sowing seeds broadly into culture. And then the last one is when he gets invited to the Areopagus, which is uh, on Mars Hill. And that's an invited dialogue with people who want to know more. So we'll look at each of those three. So let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 17. Right away it says, Paul, after he's deeply troubled, of all the idols he found everywhere in the city, what does he do? He went to the synagogue, the place of Jewish worship and assembly, and he began to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So he went to this place which was very familiar to him. Many times when Paul would go into a new city, he would start his conversations in the synagogue. Um, this is a picture of an archaeological dig of an ancient house synagogue. People of a Jewish background who were scattered abroad in the ancient world after the temple was destroyed had to rebuild the architecture in their minds of how to connect with God. And so the synagogue became that place where they assembled for conversation, where they gathered together there, this one has rows. Structures would be very familiar to what we would see and use. And so Paul finds the synagogue in the city of Athens, and he goes there and has a conversation. But his strategy that he uses is, is different than the conversations he's going to have subsequent to that. And we can see Paul's synagogue strategy earlier if we look back uh, into chapter 17, verses 2 and verse 3. It says, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths in a row, he used 
the scriptures, the Older Testament, to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies, verse 3, and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he said to them, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. And some of the Jews who were listening were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas among many other God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So, there's a few things that characterize Paul's interaction with people in this synagogue setting. One of the first things is that he doesn't just sort of breeze in, drop his message, and then breeze out of town again. He, we can get that impression sometimes reading through Acts, but there are many places where Paul stayed for an extended period of time and had sustained and regular conversations with people. And so even in the city of Thessalonica, he repeated his conversational engagement over multiple Sabbath gatherings. And he used the Older Testament, the scriptures that they would be familiar with. And he appealed to reason and history and shared authority sources like the prophets. And this was a conversation in a synagogue where Paul, because of his own Jewish history and upbringing, and his training as a Jewish religious leader prior to his conversion encounter with Jesus would have served him very well. The people he's talking to share some, but not all, of Paul's convictions about who Jesus is, for example. Now you might say to yourself, who cares how Paul had a conversation with them in the synagogue? I'm not likely to find myself in a synagogue anytime soon having a conversation with God-fearing Jews and Greeks. Who cares about Paul's strategy? What in the world does it have to do with us? Well, step back from the specifics of it for a moment and think about the types of conversations that you might have with people in our world that might share some of your convictions, but not all of them. If you encounter people with a Muslim background, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, you're in conversation with someone with whom you share some convictions. And so, when you get into conversations with people, one of the things that I want you to do is begin to think, how much does this look like a synagogue-type conversation? Does this person have religious history or affinity? If so, how much overlap is there? Where is there some ground that we share? Are they, do they believe that there's one God, for example, monotheist? Um, do they have some openness to the Bible's authority? They may not share your perspective on the Bible, but do they have some willingness to entertain what the Bible is? And that's a great question. How do you look at the Bible? What do, you, what do you see it as? And let the conversation move from there. The tone when you're having a synagogue-style conversation with somebody that you have some overlap or affinity with should be respectful because you share some things in common. But also, Paul's clear on his, where there's divergence in his perspectives on who Jesus is. Uh, and so it's respectful, but also there's clear that there's areas of difference. Paul's goal in his synagogue conversation was to demonstrate to people 
that there was a divergence in the area of their perspective on Jesus, who Jesus was. Paul had become persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah referenced in the Old Testament. And so he wasn't just content to go into the synagogue and talk about how many areas of agreement there were. He also felt that he needed to be clear and express the deep hope that he had found in Christ. And this is probably, I would say, where some of the dialogue that uh, is interreligious in nature gets a little bit uh, off track, is some of the interreligious dialogue that happens is focused exclusively on things that are shared. But if you refuse to acknowledge areas of differentiation, and some of them are quite significant, then that can be problematic for going forward if we focus too much on areas of agreement and not own up to the fact that there are differences and that if you are saying you are a Christian, that you will have differences that are meaningful and not necessarily small differences with some people that you encounter and get into conversations with. But when you're in those kinds of conversations, it's still important to be respectful. Paul gets invited back into conversation, and you don't get invited back into conversation in a Jewish synagogue if you have not been respectful in the way that you have carried yourself. And so we need to be aware that just because someone doesn't share overlap with you, just because there's disagreement in the conversation, that doesn't mean you need to stop talking with them, and it doesn't mean it needs to get heated or antagonistic. We've bought into a bit of that narrative in our world today that, oh, disagreements, that's scary and wrong. We don't want to go there. Disagree respectfully with people. Do so in a way that makes sense to you and to them. Express your convictions. Because sometimes what happens is we think, oh, this person has affinity. There's overlap here. This conversation is going to be easy because we share a lot of things. And then when it isn't easy, we're somehow shocked. What? There's differences? They're meaningful? Conversations with people that you have some affinity but some significant differences are not always easy. And so don't fall into that type of thinking. It says here in Paul's interactions with those in the Jewish synagogue in verse 4, some of them listened and they were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. But, verse 5, some of the Jews were jealous and they gathered troublemakers from the marketplace. They formed, they weren't just politely, Paul, we don't think this, we would disagree with you. They actually formed a mob started a riot, beat Paul within an inch of his life, and sent him out of town. And so, though there was some affinity, there was also, they were not able to continue that conversation. We're going to talk about results a little bit later on in one of our other types of conversation. But that would be what I would describe as a synagogue-style conversation. You have affinity, find that affinity with people, figure out what those places of contact are. It might involve you doing some extra homework, some reading, finding some resourcing for yourself, um, and then engaging respectfully in that conversation. So Paul does that when he goes to Athens. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with people, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. That's the first one. The second one 
style of conversation is he's out in the public square. Let's read. And, it says, in addition to his synagogue work, he spoke daily in the public square, the marketplace, where people would go and gather to all who happened to be there. And he had a debate with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say, these strange ideas he picked up? And others said, I don't know, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So Paul is in this conversation, not in the synagogue with a group of people that he has affinity with. He's out in the public. This is a public square conversation. And he does not speak to these people the same way he speaks to the synagogue crowd. It's different strokes for different folks. His public square conversations are more like seed sowing. He's engaging. He's putting his ideas out there into the marketplace of ideas and seeing where there's willingness to have a conversation. Paul's in the agora. He's in that space where the city, the hub of the city comes for conversations. In a place like Vancouver, we might think of a place like the, the steps of the Vancouver Public Library. That's a place where our culture understands you go to get your message out or you protest or, or have a voice in that space. And so Paul goes there and puts his message out for people to engage with and listen to. Another place in our culture might be online or broadcasting or radio in, in the old days or TV or that kind of thing. There's public conversations you're wanting to start. And some of Paul's strategy is the same, but some of it's different. Uh, one of the things that he does here is he's looking to persuade people. He's convinced of his opinion, but he doesn't do it in a way that is belligerent or pushy. Amen. So debate, putting your ideas out into the marketplace, does not mean you have to shout. It's not the loudest person that gets heard, although it can feel that way sometimes in our culture. Don't give in to that tactic or that lie. But persuading others, putting your ideas out there into the marketplace, also does not mean avoiding the hard topics and conversation. Paul's out in the marketplace and he specifically says, I'm here to make a case for Jesus. His death, his life, his resurrection from the dead. That, still in our world today, is a radical claim for people to wrestle with. And so Paul doesn't sort of just not talk about the resurrection because that would be awkward and weird for people to have to think that part of the Jesus story through. He gets right into the conversation with people. And he gets engagement from two groups of people. Uh, he gets engagement from Epicurean philosophers. These are not people who sell spices and dips and that kind of stuff. Epicureans are what philosophers would call atheistic materialists. In other words, they believe that this life is all we have. So we best eat, drink, and be merry because at some point you're going to die and that is the end of your existence. And so Epicurean philosophers said, well, if that's all there is, hedonistic pleasure, my friends, go for it. Whatever you want, you should just enjoy it because you have a, you're here for a good time, 
not a long time. And so pleasure became the chief end of their existence. And they would advocate in the marketplace of ideas, gang, you know what, just go out and do whatever you want. And then the Stoics were really on the opposite end of that spectrum. The Stoics, when they had conversations and debates with the Epicureans, they would say, hold on a minute, doing anything I want to anyone at any time might have consequences. That might not work in a civil society. What might be other options or alternatives for us? And the Stoics were a group of philosophers that were austere pantheists. So they believed in the existence of multiple gods, but they believed that whatever created, they didn't know, they couldn't name it, they didn't say it, they said, we, we believe that some kind of deistic force set the world in motion but then left us to our own devices. And so what would be best is self-restraint and to exercise caution and to kind of protect ourselves a little bit because we don't know how the world is going to turn out. And we believe that then God doesn't care about us if God exists. And the world is a little bit of an unsafe place. And so they focused on self-discipline. Very, very different views of life and worship and where we get meaning from in our world. So Paul then, as he gets into conversation with these two groups, he changes his strategy again. He makes a switch. He's been engaged in meaningful public debate and dialogue, and now he stops public preaching and he accepts their invitation to a place called Mars Hill. And so here, I think, one thing we want to take away from this is just this notion of venue sensitivity for conversations that you're having. You need to be aware of both the advantages but also the limitations of the medium of your message. We'll thank Marshall McLuhan, a great Canadian philosopher, for that. So you should ask yourself things like, is this really a conversation I should be having on Twitter? Can I have this in that number of characters or less? If not, maybe think about a different venue. Is this maybe a coffee conversation versus an email to someone? Be aware of the advantages and the limitation of the conversation you're trying to have. Have some venue sensitivity around that. Because Paul was interested in continuing a conversation. And so these two groups said, hey, we want you to come and present to us. And so he didn't say, gang, can't do that now. I have some Jews I'm busy working with over here and I'm doing some really great work in the public sphere, so just, you know, whatever. He said, oh, great, I've got some interest now. Let's go and talk with this some more. And so uh, they invited him to come to the Areopagus, which is still, you can go and visit it in Athens today. It's like the high council or the high court of the city. And it was the place where leading philosophers and religious minds gathered to debate the ideas of the day. And so we'll pick up Paul's conversation. This is his third one now, and third strategy in verse 19 of chapter 17. Then they took him to the high council of the city and they said, come, tell us about this new teaching. They said, you're saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's about. 
It should be explained, uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts, says, it should be explained that all of the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. That's his sort of commentary on this. So Paul stands before the council, and he addresses them as followers. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. I was walking among you. I was walking along. I saw your many shrines. One of your altars had an inscription on it, to the unknown God. And so Paul uses this as his entry point. He says, this God, you worship without knowing it, is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. Human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every need. From one man, he created all of the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries. And his purpose in all of this was for the nations to seek after him and perhaps find their way toward him, though he is not far from any one of us, Paul says. Remember, he's talking to these people who feel like God is distant from them. Or feeling, he's talking to these people who feel like, whatever, I'll just do whatever I want. And he says, you know what, friends, for both of you, hear that God is not far from you. And maybe you're here today, and for you, it feels like God is far away from you. Either through your own choices, and you say, I know about the life that I've lived. I know where that pathway has led me, and it has led me far away from God. Or maybe for you, you say, you know what, I just don't know what that even feels like anymore to be close to God. This is maybe your reminder for you today, that God is not far from any one of us. Reach out to God. Open your heart again and say, God, yeah, I feel far away from you, but I want to believe, I want the faith to believe that you are not far from me. And maybe for you, that's a first time step of turning back toward God and saying, I acknowledge that you exist and that you want to be close to me. You want to walk with me in my journey of life. If that's you here today, at the end of each of our gatherings, we have people who are available to pray with you and we would be privileged and love to do that with you. Paul continues in his argument. He says, He's, God's not far from any one of us because it's because of God. In God, we live, we move, we exist. Some of your own poets have said, we, meaning humanity, are God's offspring. Paul's quoting one of their poets there, Greek poets. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftspeople from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, you know what, Paul, I want to hear more about this. 
tell me more. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers, among them more Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul has his Mars Hill conversation. And one of the things that I want us to pay attention to here is that Paul is bridge building in this conversation. He's become a student of their culture. He quotes Greek poetry to them. And he also in this conversation still is about that tactic or that strategy of looking for areas of agreement. He comes in and in verse 23 he says, I see, like me, that you are very religious in every way. He does not start by attacking everything that his listeners believe that is wrong. He acknowledges the fact that they're religious and they believe something. Just like David Foster Wallace advocated for in his commencement address, this is water. There's no such thing, he says, as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. And then Paul says that kind of same thing here. He's searching for that common ground that he can build a bridge to the gospel from. And he knows that his listeners respect Greek poetry, and so he uses it. And Christians sometimes are accused today in our culture of being culturally insular. But Paul, if he was alive today, I think he'd have a killer Twitter account. I think he'd like conversations going on. I think he'd be watching TV and, and wanting to try and figure out how can he have conversations with people about some of the spiritual themes in content and movies I think he'd be reading widely. In verse 28, he quotes two philosophers, contemporary philosophers, to communicate his message of who God is and how we relate to him. Paul's debating philosophers, and so he tailors his message and brings content that are philosophers into his specific audience. And so we can see here there's a little bit of a principle for bridge-building conversations. Paul starts with where his listeners are at right now, not where he thinks they should be at. It's hard to do, but when you do it well, it opens up immense doors for conversations. And when these doors are open, then walk through them. Don't shy away. Paul, again, does not shy away from harder topics. He goes again in this venue right for the key issue, the resurrection of Jesus. Who is Jesus and what did he do? And sometimes, as Christians today, it can be difficult. And I, I would share this. I find it sometimes a challenge for me when I'm in conversation with somebody when we get into talking about things like the resurrection, I'm like, oh, do I really want to go here? This is going to end badly. We're going to have to have a whole set of very complicated conversations about harder topics. And so sometimes it's just easier to just, well, let's talk about other things. But one of the encouragements that I take away from Paul's conversations in Acts 17 is that he declares with boldness 
the whole counsel of God, the full witness of his Christian faith, he does not shy away from his convictions and difficult topics. Well, you might say, but what if they don't ask Jesus into their heart at the end of my conversation? I think here we find actually some real encouragement from Paul because Paul presents what's recorded as a wonderfully eloquent defense of his Christian faith. Respectful, clear, humble. And at the end of it, the first recorded response is contemptuous laughter. And we know this, but sometimes it's helpful to be reminded, friends, not all gospel conversations end in conversion. Similar to Paul's experiences in the marketplace and the synagogues, some people just out and out mock him and refuse to believe. Some of them are curious. They want to know more. They're, they're not convinced, but something about the way Paul has conducted himself and the message that he brought stirred something inside of them of curiosity. And they say, hey, can we have another conversation about this sometime? So one of the tips that I might give you from that is don't make the mistake of feeling the need to unload all of your evangelistic ammunition on a person who is curious. Let them set the pace. It's not a race when the Spirit of God is involved drawing people to God, opening their hearts to grace. Don't get over-anxious. In this case, some seed falls on hard soil, but some seed falls on ready soil. There are some who believe, a prominent businesswoman, a member of the high council are named, and so God by God's grace, is at work and does draw some in this conversation to saving faith there, but not everyone. So friends, it's pretty good news that even Paul, whom we hold up as like the chief apologist for the Christian faith, couldn't win everybody to Jesus. It helps me remember an important principle of these kinds of conversations. That when it comes to evangelism, you and I can contribute the inputs, that's the conversations, but we do not control the outcomes. That's God's job. And it is a very dangerous and unwise thing to try and do God's job for God or to try and move at a pace that God is not moving at because you will end up having inappropriate conversations with other people. And I wonder if why this is sometimes why evangelism or conversations that Christians call evangelism just go so poorly in the modern world and explodes because my suspicion or my theory is this, that much of what passes for quote-unquote evangelism is actually Christians having conversations that no one wants to have in venues that are not appropriate in ways that are not sensitive. Stop doing that. It's just not helpful. Paul's proclamation, though it, though it ends with the proclamation of a risen Jesus, upon hearing that, some people are curious, some sneer, and others move to places of belief. And yet Paul keeps up his gentle 
persuasion. He doesn't persuade everybody. Paul's burden was not carried to save every soul. All he had a burden to do was to preach his convictions faithfully, and the rest is up to the work of the Spirit. And so, friends, as we wrap up this series where we've been talking about being bold and being gentle, being harmless and being courageous, this is particularly difficult to do in the area of evangelism, but it's particularly necessary. And so here is my prayer for you and for us here at Jericho, that we would indeed have bold-like, serpent-like boldness, and dove-like gentleness, that we here at Jericho would be counted among the bridge builders, among the bold hope bringers and the courageous seed sowers. We would be those that are curiously respectful listeners and speakers who would not be shy about our convictions, but would address them and address and express them gently and respectfully. Tammy and the team are gonna lead us in two songs of response and our prayer response team will be available at the back and as we do uh, every week during this time of our gatherings we just invite you to take whatever posture you would like to take if you want to sing and participate and engage and respond in that way feel very free to do that if you want to stand if you want to raise your hands if you want to kneel if you want to make your way to the back and Meg and myself and others will be at the back there you'll notice those a name tag on that we can pray with you about something that's going on in your life we would be pre- pleased and